Let us pray. Father God, we come before this passage this morning and we see Joseph, a man who was enslaved, wrongfully accused, thrown into prison. And would you just help bless our understanding of this text today? Through this text, might we see more of how your love works, how you are the God who works in the midst of suffering, and also might we see the ultimate glory of the suffering servant that is Christ our Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. There was a commentary I was reading this week in Duguid, and that's how he kind of began this passage with that popular kind of Christian saying that it almost becomes cliche, but he wasn't arguing it isn't true. He wasn't saying it wasn't true, but it's that popular saying of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the problem becomes, or the problem comes from the fact that we have presumptions and we have assumptions on what the pathway of our life will look like. Of course, the most popular one in America is to basically have that find someone less and less so to maybe have children with or and to settle down and have retirement. We all have maybe a different slightly shade of, of what that looks like. But it definitely doesn't look like Genesis chapter 39. It doesn't look like this. Now, actually, when we look at a chapter like this one, if we were made to endure this kind of thing, I, I think it would be reasonable to suggest we might be saying something like, is something greatly wrong? Does God not actually love me? Does God not actually have a wonderful plan for me? We can actually succumb to depression when God changes something that we did not want changed, or he challenges something that we did not want challenged. And so while we might still go through the motions of our faith, we soon lose that genuine intimacy with God. And yet it's not that God loves us any less, or it's just that when he, it's not that God has, loves us any less when he has a different plan for us. No, rather, when it comes to Genesis 39, the entire chapter's events ultimately are grounded, and they're actually contained in two bookends. And the first bookends, the pair, is found both in verse 2, at the first part of the verse, and also in verse 3. And we read that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And others could see God and Joseph's relationship, and he was uniquely blessed from that. And then the second bookend is also found, um, at the in two verses, and it's found at later verses near the end of the chapter, the first in verse 21, where someone notices the unique reality to Joseph and how he's uniquely blessed in his walk by God. In the second half of the last verse 23b, say states, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did 
the Lord made it succeed. And so in the bookends of this chapter is found an unshakable relationship between Joseph and his lords, his, his lord, sorry, in all manner of chaos and all manner of hardship and all kinds of seasons, he finds a God in whom his faithfulness is great. Events that when thought upon would make the great multitude of Christians doubt the idea that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. And the tension of Genesis 39 is that when God changes the pattern of our lives, we need to ask ourselves, do we believe that an all-loving God, a God who is all-powerful, a God who nothing can thwart his plans, can have a morally good reason for allowing evil things and hard seasons to occur and befall his saints in this present age? Really ask yourself, do you believe that question, that an all-loving God, a God who is all-powerful, a God whom nothing can thwart his plans and have a morally good reason for allow, allowing evil things and hard seasons to occur for his saints in this present age. It's not that God is the origin of such evil, but can he still use it? The story of Joseph, helped by the testimony of Genesis 39, forces us to begin asking these kinds of questions. Can the God of the bookends, can he make good out of our suffering? Can God still love you and have a wonderful plan for you? And if you read the pages of, of Genesis 39 and really the pages of your life story and those hardships and those hard moments, the answer biblically is yes. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying you need to be a stoic in all things. It's occasionally okay, as the Word of God tells us, to weep over times and to grieve over losses, to reflect on even misopportunities and abuses you've suffered. There is a season for such a thing. But the fact remains is that while Joseph's life is a life with pointed and extreme moments of suffering, that suffering in the hands of the God who created the world, the God of the bookends, God ultimately gives purpose and dignity to it. And so if we can acknowledge that today, then we kind of learn something new about suffering. And the application for us this morning will be to realize God will use moments of suffering to refine us. And if we, uh, and if we have the unwavering faith to and suffer well, which Joseph does. Actually, for those who suffer well, they have the power, as Joseph will illustrate, to transform and change individuals, change families, change communities, and change even nations. In one sense, Joseph is a unique disciple of God sent forth in a great commission as the pages of Genesis close. Now, our passage begins by taking us back in time to the end of chapter Genesis 37. If you remember, we covered two decades in chapter 38 with Judah. Last week, of course, we caught a glimpse of Judah's life over those two decades that where it followed after he helped usher in the sale of Joseph into slavery. And he was not walking with the Lord. But we return to the thread of Joseph's life now. 
where he has just been brought down to Egypt by those traders of the materials of Egyptian burial that would have given them royal connections. And Joseph is sold into slavery to the captain of the guard and to really the second in command in one sense in Egypt. He's literally the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And in verses 2 and 3, we have the first side of the bookend we talked about. The Lord was with Joseph, a Joseph who, in seeking to make sure the brothers were all right, had been stripped naked by his own brothers, left for dead by his own brothers, sold for profit by his own brothers, and then taken as a slave into a foreign land. God begins by letting us know, even letting the ancient Israeli reader know, Wherever his followers go, he will follow. He does not forsake those in whom he loves. He will follow. And he will bless. So as we return to the story of Joseph, the word of God first wants us to remember God is with us in suffering and hardship. A lot of difficult things are being endured by a great many in our midst, life and death situations, financial hardships, family struggles, betrayals, and the list could go on. And verse 2 and 3 are there to anchor us and to remind us God is with his faithful. As they, and as Joseph walks deeper into, in one sense, a valley of a shadow of death that this chapter will take us into, God reminds us twice both at the start and the end, he is uniquely still blessing Joseph. And by extension, God is with you and I when we find rest in him. So God's favor so rests on Joseph in this moment that the Egyptian people cannot help but acknowledge that God seems to be blessing the young man, this foreign slave. Culturally speaking, let's think about this. Joseph was ripe for criticism. He was the outsider. He looks different. He spoke a different language. He wasn't one of them. And yet Joseph continues to, and yet as Joseph continues to receive tasks, we see the, the blessing of this man's unique gifts in comparison to his other brothers. We see in Joseph the fact that even though his own blood, his own family did not receive him, that ultimately he is given redemption and a time of, of great blessing in Egypt. Now, one thing about this text, well, God has made clear that he was with Joseph, blessing Joseph in this text. We don't know for certain at this moment whether or not Joseph knew God was blessing him. It doesn't say. And there's an important lesson in that silence. It's not... The important thing isn't whether Joseph felt that God was blessing him, but that God was still present with him. And we could see as the narrative goes, continues in verse 5, that even Pharaoh is being blessed by the extension of having a faithful follower of Joseph being near. That one God-honoring individual can have great power to bless even the Pharaohs of this world. If you've bought into that popular myth today that you know, America can decouple itself from Christianity and still be blessed. You want to take a sharpie to this passage in verse 5. Here, Joseph was in a godless society, in a godless place, a place that did not seek after God. 
And we can see that he, the whole royal courts are blessed by his presence in their midst. And, and it's interesting. We, we hear the Bill of Rights. We know about the separation of church and state. But the idea of the separation of church and state in the founders' eyes wasn't so much to protect the state from the church. It was to protect the church from the state. They saw the value in having Christianity amongst the salt of the community, the bedrock, the foundation of the community. They realized that Christians were a blessing to society. We need to remember that. We need to capture that. We need to remember that Joseph was just one in the midst of Egypt. And yet his faithful witness blessed a nation, blessed the leaders of a nation, blessed an entire society that had been devoid of God in Christ or, or the Lord at this point. Because he was not fully revealed. We need to remember that. You know, yesterday we had the graduation ceremony for three young men for the homeschool that this church helps with. And, you know, I was sitting in the back during the whole ceremony. Every, the children are coming up being recognized for their accomplishments. And I get a unique perspective of being able to see how much time is invested in essentially creating a school week to week for a year by a bunch of mothers, primarily fathers help occasionally, but, and in one sense, it looks very insignificant. Don't get me wrong. It looks small. It looks tiny. And yet I couldn't help, but think as we were sending, and even I mentioned it in the prayer, those three young men out from the program, that God is the God who can use the one to bless the many. God is the God who uses the one to bless the many. That here these parents have invested in planting seeds and, and watering for these children. And the joyous good news of the scripture is, as we continue to see a society that wants to decouple itself from Christianity, our impact, our witness, does not have to also retreat. We actually still can have a profound impact upon society. The testimony of Jesus Christ is proof of this. The one carpenter who blesses the multitude, too great to count. So while Joseph, as a foreigner, as a slave, as someone who doesn't even speak their language, their native language, uh, that's not his native language. He obviously learned it. But he would have been so insignificant. And yet, because the God of the bookends has a relationship with Joseph, his impact is incredible. Because he's unashamedly faithful in this community. The community reaps the rewards of his faithfulness, and they are uniquely blessed, even the Pharaoh himself, because of his faithfulness. So things are going well for Joseph around verse 6. 
Joseph literally runs Potiphar's house, everything except for what falls on the kitchen table. And it's now we learn that Joseph was like his mother, Rachel. He was very attractive. In his being attractive, it will be, bring a temptress, Potiphar's wife. She looks, and in the Hebrew, it's kind of like she looks and she looks again, like she continues to look. And she kept looking, and it's going to consume her. You know, it's not, it's rarely the first time we look at sin or we consider sin that we act upon sin. It's often that second look, that third look. There's a wisdom here that actually Joseph is going to later on display that we need to be mindful of to flee wickedness. And then she says something crass, which the English language, English translations don't truly capture. And I think they're wise in not capturing it. But she suggested Joseph in two Hebrew words, basically, as it's translated there, for them to lie together. This kind of language is never used in the Hebrew to talk about marital intimacy or marital love. It's, it's more callous. It's more crass than that. And, and I can't help but think about Judah in our last chapter at this moment. Judah would have loved a woman like this, right? This would have been like the ideal woman for Jade, Judah. By the way, remember, Judah saved too. Judah went down to Canaan for multiple decades, and he came out looking like a Canaanite. Joseph, however, goes down to Egypt, and he refuses to embrace the pattern of Egyptian life. We think of like Cleopatra, for instance, as a, a woman of a seductress in one sense. She had power over powerful men. That, that idea was long before Cleopatra. It was a part of the Egyptian culture. And Joseph expresses two reasons to Potiphar's wife why he cannot embrace her advances. And actually, I believe in his explanation, he gives a summary of the law. First, it would do harm to his neighbor, basically Potiphar, who has been nothing but good to him. He only withholds one thing from him. How could he do that against neighbor? By the way, Compare that to Adam and Eve. They had one thing, one thing God withheld from them. One thing they were asked not to partake in. And they could not honor. Here Joseph actually, he, he's not someone who's saying a victim of his circumstance. I mean, this guy's been enslaved. He has, and the, the cultural woke world would love a Joseph. They would give him right to do whatever he wants. He can loot any target he wants to go loot, right? He has every justification. And he says, no, we'll do harm to my neighbor, to a man who's done good to me, and just has one thing he doesn't want me to touch and to partake in. And then, and more importantly, he says, it would also be sin 
before God. Sin before God. And I want you to capture something there. I want you to actually ask yourself, and I'll be kind of direct. Ask yourself this question. If you're following the pattern in the story of Scripture, how does Joseph know the seventh commandment? Has Joseph, uh, has Moses already come down the mountain with it inscribed in the stone? Hasn't, has it? How does Joseph know the seventh commandment? Actually, I think even the psalm we read today hints at this. The reality is the commandments help define what we ultimately know through our conscience, through our heart. It's the commandments. It's not that we needed Moses to come down the mountain to know what our God wanted our walk to look like. We were created in the image of God. What does that mean? We were created to look like God, to be godly in our, our manner and, and life. And because Joseph has been walking faithfully with the Lord, he, unlike Judah, understands the idea of sin and that this is gross wickedness. You know, it's funny because there's like a fake debate that goes on in churches about God's law. Now, does God really mean that? Does God really mean this? And actually, what Joseph is revealing here is that when we have those questions, like, does God really prohibit marriage outside of a man and a woman? Is that really true? If that's a struggle for you, it's only a struggle because you're not walking with the Lord as closely as you could. And, to, and I have my hobby horses where I struggle too, if that's one of yours. The reality is, when we walk with God, we receive the wisdom that God gives. He blesses that. And so Joseph knows the law of the Lord because he walked closely with the law of the Lord. He knows his righteousness because he lives for his namesake. And so Joseph isn't like Judah from Genesis 38, ill-prepared to face temptation. No, actually, this moment shows that he is well-prepared to face this moment. You know, why do, we, why do we listen to the fourth commandment? Hopefully listen to the fourth commandment. Why do we come, are called to come to church? Every week, week in and out. We're called to every, every day to receive our daily bread, to, to start our day, to end our day, meditating on the law of the Lord, to think about God in this way. In one sense, it's so that we're prepared to live in wisdom with God. I, I tried to create in the cover of your bulletin that the pews of the church and then the wilderness before us, there are the hard moments, there are the hard times, there are the times of suffering, the hard mountains, the, the wilderness before us that we need to be prepared for. And Judah did not walk in a way that prepared him for those moments. And Joseph did it. And so unlike Judah, who took Joseph in verse 7, will not take he refuses that which has been forbidden to him because of his relationship with God. 
because he desires to live in the image of God. Has God created that in you, that desire to turn down what others want you to take? And Potiphar's wife, and she continues, she continues and continues to try to tempt him until she finds an opportune time to pounce. She grabs a hold of Joseph by the garment, and Joseph fled. And we, again, we have little doubt of how Judah would have responded to such a situation. Jude, for Judah, again, she would have been an ideal kind of woman during this time in his life. But Joseph is losing a garment for a second time in his life. And that second time a garment of Joseph is being lost, it is going to yet again be used to deceive. Oh, the story the God of the bookends has woven into Scripture for the sake of our salvation. And while Judah was willing to sacrifice two goats in order to sin, Joseph loses two garments because he was faithfully righteous. And it can't be personal pride that caused Joseph to run away because if it had been the case, he would have come back for the garment. No, Joseph understands it's better to lose a cloak than lose your character. I find it hard to believe that the Apostle Paul, nearly 2,000 years later, when he was ministering to a Corinthian church that had the whole kind of sexual ethic question backwards and, and ministering to their ungodly view of sex, that Paul didn't have this very passage in mind. There's actually textual clues in there that help substantiate this, that when he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 through 20, and said, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I find it impossible to believe Paul's not thinking of this story here. In part, that Joseph was willing to run away and lose a cloak to preserve his character. Are you someone who runs away from such sins? Are we people who run away from such sins? Or are we people who have settled in with such sins? We have invested in them like Judah. And Potiphar's wife, in anger that she cannot have this man, this righteous one, she lies. And she begins to coalition build against Joseph. She knew that Joseph had a close relationship, even with her husband. So she not only defames Joseph, but she starts insulting her husband as well. She tries to get all the uh, aides around her, and she speaks about, you know, Joseph's status as a foreigner. And she speaks against the integrity of her husband, who had integrity because he treated the sojourner and foreigner well under the roof of his household. And for the second time in two chapters, we now have a situation that looks like infidelity, and it's far worse than Tamar's situation where she was engaged to another and appears to be unfaithful. This one is with a married wife. And we would be missing a significant point of comparison if we don't appreciate the fact that Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, 
who has the ability just to snap his finger and end the life of Joseph, extends and offers more grace to Joseph than Judah was willing to offer a family member. Think about that. Potiphar was willing to extend more grace to Joseph, a slave, a foreign, than Judah was willing to extend to his own family member. And ironically, of course, with Judah, she was guilty not of the sin he thought, for he was the one of true guilt and truer guilt. And so while Judah wanted to Tamar to burn, Potiphar at least offers Joseph the prison and the pit. And so Potiphar casts Joseph into the second dungeon of his life. He will face. And yet, after Joseph is cast into yet another dungeon, God wants to remind us again of the bookends for those who have a relationship with their Lord. While Joseph has another loss of freedom over the control of his life and his life going forward in the way that he had grown comfortable, he still submits to the providence before him as he is cast into the pit yet again. And God reminds us he's still blessing Joseph. And Joseph, yet again in this prison, continues to bless those around us. Now even the prisons in Egypt are better because of the presence of Joseph. Those in gulags can delight. You know, um, just kind of trying to boil down this whole idea of suffering in Joseph. I think Heather Kratz and my wife painted this together because my wife has artistic ability. She said yesterday, I don't believe she does, but my wife has artistic ability. And on top of our headboard is something she painted that says, bloom where you are planted. And I was thinking about that in regards to this verse. You think about a flower. And a flower, and think about this from a flower's perspective. You know, somebody like Rose Kramer, who's not here today, when she plants a flower, you know, what does she do every spring? What does she put around the flower? Crap, right? She puts crap around the flower. I'm allowed to say that. It's a scriptural word. It's in Philippians. Uh, anyways, she puts the scubula around the flower. What does that do to the flower? It's so long as it has exposure to sunlight and water, light of the sun and water. What does it do to the flower? Benefits the flower, right? One of the things God's revealing in chapter 39, Genesis, is that God in suffering has this unique ability to still display that he is able to bless and to allow his saints to bloom where they are planted. Even when the manure of life comes along. And yet, to do that, we need to have that relationship. And so, brothers and sisters, seek righteousness and flee from evil. Remembering the God who is always faithfully there for us. You know, in Joseph's close relationship with God, he began to look more and more like the, how God always wanted him to look. Who was he created to look like? 
He was a son beloved by the father who cast into the pit of death. He was cast into the pit of death because he came to his own and his own would not receive him. He was considered a dreamer. And yet this son was still faithful unto the end to his father to pursue righteousness, forsaking all temptation. And wherever he went, whatever rejection he faced, still blessing continued to go forth from him. And the number blessed continued to spread and it ultimately spread throughout the nations. Until it's no longer just about a family being blessed or a community being blessed, but Again, the very world being blessed. But who am I talking about, Christian, in that description? Was it Joseph I just described? Or was it the one in whom Joseph remained faithful to walk alongside of in this life? The Lord his God. Who did I describe? Brothers and sisters in Christ, life can be hard. And it can be difficult to venture forth from one bookend to the other bookend. But what this holy word declares for us this morning is that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And yes, sometimes that plan will encounter suffering, those patches of manure we have set before us at points of this life. That's just the nature of the Lord's garden in this present age. Growing can be a painful experience at times, and yet God ultimately can create a moral good out of that evil. He has a good reason for that evil in the time being. We only need to look to the cross to see how suffering can be blessed in the hands of God. So God's quiet hand is still gently guiding and, guard and guarding that planting that he's doing. He guards both your days and mine until one day we will see him face to face. I can't wait to embrace the one who offers, offers such stories of redemption and growth. I can't wait to meet the one who seems able to make even the worst of situations, the worst kind of moment, moments that end up having beautiful stories involved in them. Can't wait to fall on the floor and praise the name of the God who would suffer and endure for my name's sake and for yours. Let's then seek after his righteousness. Let's seek more richly to grow in his image so that you and I might grow in strength in the wilderness and during the mountaintop moments of this life in the valleys below. What a blessing such a life would be, both to us and to those around us. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that you have control of our story and that in controlling our story, even evil cannot gain the upper hand over our hearts. Help us then to draw near to you so that we might look more like you and Help us to be a blessing to those around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.